Just in case there are young ears in the room, there are instances of profanity in this episode. Welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tom Fullery, starring Jerry Springer, along with Gene Galvin and me. I'm Megan Hills. We're recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Mr. Jerry Springer. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Show of 2016. This is the last one we're doing for 20. Oh my gosh, I'm wearing the same sweater as I wore How the last show. Embarrassing. See, yeah, I mean, we just do two a night, so that's why. <laughs> well, sometimes we do. Yeah, because I want people to think that I do change my clothing. Yeah. Hey, by well, the way, I have people who change it for say, me. Don't, yeah, my people even... <laughs> change my clothing. That's right. Jesel <laughs> Pates. Um, you don't have people. Go ahead, Gene. I'm sorry. Well, no, Gene. no, no. Well, first of all, happy birthday to uh, Dr. Miles Greer. He didn't oh, know yeah. this was coming, but happy oh, birthday. Yeah. 39 years old today. 39. And what's interesting is that uh, Dr. Greer is here. He's uh, the son of close friends of mine and yes. and uh, Melvin Greer, who shot, by the way, the photos for. The website, so that, yes. they're pretty. He's a great photographer, and but he teaches at Queens College. Where you were what, talking at the break because we did. We are recording yeah, two episodes oh, tonight, and your sister Evelyn went to the college where Doctor Greer yeah. is a professor. I would yes, and, and she loved it there. And I, I would say that probably most of the uh, kids at Forest Hills High School probably went to Queens. I'd say about fifty percent probably did, and the other fifty went out of town. Yep, I was one of those who was sent out of town, mm. sent away, as they say, far, yeah. far away. My my parents said, "Gerald, do us a favor." Yeah, <laughs> Louisiana yeah. seems far enough, and just <laughs> hell out of here. Just, just go. Yeah, bye. Boy, you know, speaking of that, and I would ask everybody listening and people in the audience tonight, go to jerryspringer.com on your cell phones right now because there is a poll question up about you, and and it has to do with a photo. You remember last week at the post-show dinner that mm-hmm. we do, that I showed on my cell phone a picture of oh, Jerry right. doing. Well, I guess I'm going to oh, call bodybuilding right. poses. Yes, in a speedo. You didn't put that on the website. It's on the website. Well, that's stupid. Well, no, no. <laughs> actually, just offensive. Slightly offensive. Not stupid. Actually, it's not on the website. Here's what I put on the yeah. website as of today. Uh, it, this is a photo of Jerry uh, at a summer vacation. You and I and our wives and, and our young kids. children. And young children. Right. We're probably at Hilton Head Island somewhere. Yes, we're at a swimming pool. And Jerry uh, had this thing, Megan, where he would just like, you know, just want to bump you up. You know, he would oh, do yeah. Well, let's Jerry be honest. I'm, I'm ripped. You are ripped. <laughs> well, well. Okay, my pants are ripped. There we <laughs> Every go. Every time. They are. I, so I looked at this photo. I found yeah. it in some oh, we'll never-seen-before photos. It, There's in a, a reason box. they've never been So seen. I looked at this photo, and oh. I thought, the public has a right to know this. <laughs> I they agree. have a right to see this. No, that's offensive. Where do I put on the website? <laughs> you go to jerryspringer.com. You will see a thing that says, show the pick, question mark. And you click on that, and you see I cropped it. So all you see is what we—it's what we call a head and shoulder shot, Megan. Right, it's right. kind of In a tease, biz. yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So anyway, if you want to see the full picture, oh. And by the way, do not let your children see this, America. This is you. This is up to you to make this happen. This and is- when I looked today, it was a hundred percent of the votes were for show the damn picture. Oh. 
So, uh, well, sure, because if you had a picture of Tom Cruise, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't yeah, you want to see it? Yeah. I can understand why people would want to yeah. see me. You me live in, in a bathing such suit. a very, very, very demented reality, sir. No. <laughs> it is so awful. No, well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what. I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror, and, and I throw up. <laughs> so, no. So, I go wow. to the doctor, and the doctor says, well, at least your eyesight's good. <laughs> Gene. Gene, I've been that on, was, Jerry, about you got to come in here with some new material. I've been good. bringing some stuff in, and it sucks, yeah, but, yeah, but I do the work. Good stuff. I do the show That was prep. good stuff, though. Yeah, Jerry yeah. I'm going to tell you. You know, I mentioned this. The Galvin family, Megan, I've told you, are very smart, I, I very hate. smart oh, people. Oh, they the are. Galvin yeah. Family. yeah, tell me about and, it. And uh, my you're, Uncle you're Fred. Bro- one of your brothers is here. Yeah, well, actually, it's my Uncle Thomas, and, and he was uh, <laughs> he was funny. Does he, he was, know Uncle Fred? He does. Well, he knows all these people. They're his uncles, too. And... My uncle Thomas actually is married to, to my aunt Julia, and they were in bed together, you know, sleeping the night through. And the phone rings at about two in the morning, and my uncle Thomas grabbed the phone and answered it. And my aunt Julia apparently heard a conversation that went like this. He said, "What? What? No! What the hell am I, a, a weatherman? No!" And he hung the phone up. And she said, "What was that?" And he says, ah, "Some guy asking if the coast was clear." Uh, but I'm from. Anyway, anyway. I so, really uh, just can't stand yeah. you anymore. Hey, I wanted to mention this. <laughs> On a, we have the Standing Rock. Oh, this uh, is for real, though. Yeah. Promotion going. It's yep. an. It, yep. it, it, it's on our website. And it is soliciting songs, and this is from something you said a few weeks ago that we were reminiscing that back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, folk singers had a tradition of using music part of the time, often uh, yeah. greatly, for advocacy, yeah. to kind of move messages and to try to make things happen. My God, the folk singers were key in the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the, so many things. And so we have, because we don't think Standing Rock is necessarily over, the water protectors have... Everything's sort of cool, not cooled down, frozen down because it's the uh, plains of North Dakota and it's very cold and there are blizzards and everything's kind of stopped for the moment. But we don't know that it's going to stay stopped because we don't know what the Trump because administration Trump will, will do. Yeah, I'm not so we, good about it. I'm not either. I agree with you. So we have been getting some really cool songs sent in and we are putting them, if they are worthy, and so far the ones we received are worthy, they have gone up on the website. And so if you go to jerryspringer.com and you look to the right, you'll see standing rock song entries and you can click on them and listen to them. And there are three or four of them up there. James Weston, a folk singer who's travels around the country and around uh, the world actually to perform and is at the moment staying in Ludlow, Kentucky. So many folk singers have kind of moved in this yeah. little town. He has one ready to come to us. Oh, great. Uh, last week, Michaela Faree was here, and she has one coming. So this is growing. So please, if you're a songwriter and you're listening, uh, do a song. Use that as a prompt and write something about some aspect of the song. That's a great and, idea. Uh, and yeah. it was your idea, Gene. That's great. Well, That's a good idea. you know, appreciate it. And I've, I've spent time working on a reservation yeah. as part of my work over the years. And uh, But it's, it's something we all feel, all three yeah. of us, Megan, Jerry, sure. yep. we all three do. Yep. Yeah, it makes me think of something. Uh, 
and we joke about this, I have read your book that you wrote back in the 90s, and it's been pretty interesting. And I got my copy off of eBay for probably four That's bucks. not the one that got the Pulitzer. The classic piece of yeah. literature, yeah. yes, yes. And, and I have it, and I now. will sell it for two bucks if somebody messages me or sends an email, gene at jerryspringer.com, because <laughs> I'm about done with it. I've marked it up pretty good. But what this is also part something? of the financials, Jerry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all it's part of the business plan. Uh, hey, I read in this book uh, that when you were at Tulane, and, and you and I are a couple white liberals, and, and let's don't yep. make a, we don't want to be saying like, well, we've experienced oh, no, what it's no, no, like. No. To, you, actually, you're Jewish. You lost, in all seriousness, yep. you lost family members in the Holocaust, which to me is a moral equivalency of, of uh, slavery. But I'm just a white liberal guy that, you know, we sometimes would get involved in these But causes. now I'm a limousine liberal. You are right. a limousine liberal. <laughs> when you were at Tulane, and your book talked about this, there were times when you and fellow students, because that was in the 1960s, the mid-60s. It was, yeah, in 1961 through 65. So did you go off and do some voter registration yeah. work in the South? You were in New Orleans. You were yeah, in the we'd South. go in caravans of cars, or we take a bus. We go into Mississippi, neighboring Mississippi and register people to vote. And, uh, and a lot, you know, we weren't heroes for doing that. A lot of people were doing that. Well, I, I was thinking there was even something on campus, which, you know, it's often interesting to get involved in a cause, but then you take a look at your own situation and what are you doing about that? And it, this, it, it seems like a very minor, silly thing, but I remember it was a little controversial at the time. I was in a fraternity. We had a fraternity house. And I'm embarrassed to say, I mean, all the fraternity houses were like that, but we had people that would clean the rooms and cook meals for us. And they were, without exception, African-American. And, you know, I'm coming down as a 17-year-old freshman. You know, what do I know? And they were getting... 25 cents an hour. Wow. 25 cents an hour. And I remember at one of the fraternity meetings, and then when I became chancellor of the fraternity, the fraternity was TEP, and chancellors like the president, you know, fraternities have all these crazy names. Uh, you know, we decided that 25, this was ridiculous that, and we raised it. I don't remember what we raised it to, but it was a substantial raise immediately. And the other fraternities complained about it. No kidding. I mean, it became an issue because they thought now they're going to have to do that. That's amazing. And, it, you know, so I'm just saying we, you can look at the grand picture, but every once in a while you got to figure out, oh, wait a second, what am I doing just in the lives that, uh, that we touch? And that became, yeah. I remember that became a pretty controversial issue for several weeks in the Greek community um, on, on the Tulane campus. And Tulane was clearly more progressive than much of the South. And, and there were people that will tell you that New Orleans really isn't the South. It's mm -hmm. almost like an oasis, a cultural oasis okay. in what we refer to as the Deep South. Once you step north of New Orleans and go into the rest of Louisiana, then you got into the areas that back then, you know, we refer to as the Deep South and all the severe segregation and stuff like that. But honestly, that's my memories of that because that was a personal battle. Yeah. You go on with the rides, you know, you went with a bunch of kids and 
you're doing it out of for a great social cause, but it's like people that show up for these Saturday morning runs for some charity. You do it because it's important, but somehow you don't feel as invested. This was, hey, point. what are we doing? You know, and, and it just, if there is a sense of justice in you, then you know where you stand on an issue just like that. There's no discussion well, that has to take place. It's just in, in obvious. In 1969, I, I, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, man, I, I was a real failure socially in 1969 because I, I just got married. I was getting my master's degree and I was in the summer taking a bunch of courses and I joined this swim club. Ooh, and this is in the Cincinnati area. This is great. And this swim club was closed down. It had been, it had its heyday and then it shut down and it just sat there. And some people from a neighborhood, from a very white neighborhood, probably a hundred percent white neighborhood, two or three neighborhoods away, bought this old swim club that was a beautiful place that was right in the heart now of a very urban and mostly African-American neighborhood. This was 69. Uh, Martin Lu Dr. Martin Luther King had been assassinated the summer the before. before. Right. Cincinnati, like other cities, were reverberating from that. And they had things that burned in that era that, that summer before, the year before. And there was even unrest that year. I joined this swim club because it was convenient and my uh, family members had joined it. And we all went in pretty naively, to be honest. And we didn't really know much about the place. I'm sitting in this swim club, going there during the week, studying. As I was getting my master's, my wife was at work. And it was, I was slow to kind of get it that I'd look around and think, it's all a bunch of white people. And we're in the middle of an of a African-American neighborhood. And finally, I kind of thought, Gene, you, you belong into a swim club that's like a racist place. And, but I didn't have the, the balls to just say, I quit, or to go around and challenge people and just walk out. I kept going to the swim club. And one day I parked my car, it's probably a Wednesday, around noontime after class, parked the car up the, up the hill a bit from this, the door of the swim club. Swim club, by the way, you'd enter a door, go up, and then kind of like a New Orleans balcony, you'd yeah. walk down this long walkway, and the pool was on the right, Olympic-sized pool, beautiful blue water, very cool place, and all these white folks like me at this swim club. I'm walking down the street to go through the front door, and I look and I see a guy twice my size, probably about my age. I was probably about 23 at the time, and it's an African-American guy leaning against the wall next to the door opening. And I'm walking, I'm thinking, this is not, this doesn't look like this is going to be a good thing that's going to happen here. And I get, he stepped out in front of me, and he faced me, and he said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to go swimming in this swim club. And he said, no, I think I'll go. And that, now, mothers, put your hands over the ears of the kids because I'm going to say exactly what went down. I said, you're not going in there. You can imagine him hearing this yeah. from me. You're not going in there. And he says, why? I said, because it's a racist motherfucking swim club. <laughs> They're not going to let you in there. <laughs> And now he's like staring down at me like he didn't know whether to like knock me out right there or like, what's with this guy? And I said, but I got an idea. Why don't you go in with me and be my guest? And we'll bust this motherfucking place today. 
And he said, "One second, Richard, step <laughs> away. Take those earplugs out." Now you can't unhear that stuff. No, you can't. So he said, "Are you serious?" And I said, "Yeah. Why don't we just do this?" And I said, "I'm Gene Galvin." He gave me his name. I know his first and last name. First name was Kenny. And I said, "Let's go." We walked up the steps, and I said, "Now listen." We're going to do this real fast. By the way, I had not been schooled in yeah. social activism, political activism, but you kind of make it up real fast, right on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. I said, we're going to do this real fast. They're going to ask your name. I'll give them your name. I'm going to pay some money. We're going downstairs to the locker room. Just stay right with me. And he said, all right. The next thing I noticed, long walk the people always watched everybody coming in. Oh, it's yeah. just kind of what you do. You yeah. know, who's coming? I saw people getting out of the pool. Shut they saw, up. they didn't know me. Nobody knew me. Nobody, I, I didn't know that. any of these people. I just yeah. went to this pool. So they see me and they see this guy and they got out of the pool. I, I swear, I'll never forget it. One by one, people got out. They stood on the far side of the pool along the long edge of it and watched. Oh my God. Gene. We got to the counter. There always was a young high school girl there taking, you know, you show her a membership card. You yeah. get a towel if you wanted one. Yeah. So I got there and I said, this is Kenny. Gave her his last name. Here's some money. He's my guest. Here's his name. Write it down. Boom, we were gone. We go down the wooden steps into the locker room. And I kept thinking, and he kept thinking, what's going to happen? How, how does this play out? Right. What's going to happen? So we get to the locker room, and it was an old school lock, men's locker room with a urinal along the wall. So I got to take a leak, and I went over. And I'm standing, taking it's, a leak, and he says to me, from behind, he says, uh, "I don't have any swim trunks or anything." And I said, "There, we are not going to get in that water, but let's just see how far we can go." <laughs> I, don't worry about that. And then it happened. I heard bounding down the steps, three steps at a time, the sound of an adult bound. It wasn't that high school girl bounding down the steps and then I felt this presence behind me and a guy yells at me he didn't say it he yelled at me what the fuck are you doing and I turned around and it was a manager of the swim club mm -hmm. I didn't know him I knew he was a coach at the University of Cincinnati cool. in one of their athletic programs not a head coach and, I, and that I, I remember that because that shocked me yeah. that he was going to play this out he was working for the man on that day, and he was going to yeah. play this out, and he was a university coach. Yeah. And what are you doing? I said, I'm taking a piss. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? And I said, well, when I'm done, we're going to go swimming. And he says, who's he? I said, it's my guest. Now, I failed to tell you this is how stupid I was when I joined this club. <laughs> the rules were the only guests you could take in were family members. <laughs> nice going. My there's, brother's in the audience. There's a fine if, friend. If I'm lying, I'm dying. Only, you had to be family members. <laughs> so, so you said, this is my brother, Ken. I did. <laughs> did you really? He said, he said, who is he? And I said, it's my guest. And he said, they're going to be family members. And I said, he's my brother. And he said, do not give me this philosophical bullshit. Who is he? And I said, my guest. And he said, um, he's got to leave. And I said, no, we're going to go swimming. And he said, I'm going to get the police. And he, bound, he ran back up the steps. I said to this guy, 
had met this guy like four minutes earlier. Right. <laughs> and I said to this guy, um, it's your call because he'll get, I'm pretty sure he's going to get the police. And he said, well, what will they argue? He'll argue. And I said, it's that you're trespassing, I imagine. And then I know me, I'm going to say some stuff or do something, and we're both going to jail. We're definitely going to jail today. So, <laughs> we want to do this. this how yeah. this is going to go down. And we're going to jail. Well, I, I figured, oh, great. I just know me, if something was going to get said. Yeah. I'm sure. And so he said, I down. do not, I remember he said, I don't, I don't want to go to jail. And I said, then let's go. And we walked back up the steps, down the long walkway. All those people, it was a Wednesday or so, so it wasn't like hundreds. You can get back in now. <laughs> they all were standing, arms folded, watching this, and we went back out on the street, and we exchanged phone numbers, and I said, I will make you this promise. This is not over. Yeah. I don't know where this is going, because I don't know how to do this, but this, this is not over. Well, the end of the story was, uh, next fall, I'm back in. I didn't quit. I, and no one ever talked to me again in that pool except for my family. Yeah. I went back to work since I had public schools where I was working. Very diverse population working in a place called Over the Rhine, poor neighborhood, and uh, working with a very diverse staff. I told this story at lunch one day, and at the table there were multiple lawyers uh -huh. who were beating the draft, teaching in schools to get to the age of 26 when they couldn't be drafted. And one of the lawyers said, well, let's bust the place. And I said, well, how do you do that? And he says, oh, we, we can do this. So I have some meetings and we'll map it all out. And then we did. Yeah. And he knew a woman who was a professor at the University of Cincinnati, an African-American woman. And if there was, uh, on the lawyer side of it, if there was interstate commerce, if they brought food, because yeah. he, he said to me, do they have a concession stand? Yeah. Oh, yeah, great cheeseburgers and yeah. all this food. If they're bringing any of that across state lines, and they can't, and that's how they were yeah. going after and integrating uh, oh. swim clubs. Yeah, private didn't matter, and that woman, what we schemed out, as I called the head of the pool, and I's not the manager. Forget him. This was now the person that headed up the board, and I said I didn't get my membership packet, and this was the following April, and it was this long pause. You're not getting a membership packet. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. You're not getting a membership packet. And he just yeah. hung up. So a few days after that, this woman called and said, uh, it was over the phone, she says, I'd like to join the pool. I work yeah. at the University of Cincinnati. I drive by there. And the membership woman, that's who she called, said, absolutely, come to this neighborhood, to this address. Yeah. And she showed up. The woman opened the door and looked at her, a black woman, yeah. a white woman, looked at the black woman and said, oh, I'm so sorry. A day ago, we filled up. I'm so sorry that <laughs> we had you come over, that I had you come over here. I didn't do the math, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> and uh, she said, I'm disappointed, too, and closed the door. Two days later, the attorney friend of mine who was a teacher called, and they didn't, couldn't connect any of these dots, and he said, I'd like to join the swim club. And, and they said, white, come on yeah. over. He's white. That's what they did with housing. Housing yeah, opportunities yeah. made equal. Yeah, home. And, right. and, and when he showed up, they sat him down. He had a check. He wrote his check. He got his membership, and he left. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Two days after that. They get this 
I called the head of the pool again, not the membership yeah. woman, and I said, it's Gene Galvin, don't hang up. It's sort of like the story you joked yeah. about with uh, yeah. when you first met your wife. I said, it's Gene Galvin, please don't hang up. I want to explain something to you. He didn't say a word. He did not hang up. Yeah. And I said, uh, let me tell you what we did. Uh, it, it's a racist swim club, and uh, a woman came, and I gave her name, and she was denied, and I gave the date and gave the time. And then another guy who's on my team came yesterday, two days ago. You signed him up, uh, and we are going to federal court. And that's always om ominous when yeah. you hear that. I'm not going to, you know, Local. We're, we're going to federal court, and you will be sued. And uh, that's how this is going to go down. And then I hung up. And then we started to do this work to prepare this case. And damn, about. A month later, I pick up the Cincinnati paper, and it said, Swim Club Closing for Lack of Membership. <laughs> that's how they explained it, and that's what they said to the media. We're closing. And six months after that, it was a Roy Rogers restaurant. And what wow. really pisses me off is that that's how they solved it. Yeah. That's outrageous. Yeah. That in 1969 they would do yeah. that. That they wouldn't just say how much what the of hell this difference is it. How make? much of this story was then put in the newspapers because they oh, bear the story of my part of what we did. No, no None of but that. Of None the, of that. that this obviously did the newspapers write that the reason they the no. real reason they closed it. See, they're None complicit. They were complicit in this. The well, media they didn't know in this city was no. Complicit. But there's where you have to blame me because I know much more about how to do this. I. And I don't, maybe we did think about it. Do we want to now force this out publicly so that other clubs would face this because there was a movement afoot in Oh, I era. see. So they never heard this They story. never heard. I never told oh. them that. It just, we just did what yeah. we did and it became a restaurant and that was that. And I Well, it was say, Roy Rogers, so that kind of excuse Yeah, all right. They had, <laughs> if it had been a restaurant, I mean, they're, they're, I, I got to say, civil rights, that's important. But those cheeseburgers. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> No, it's it's roast beef sandwiches are darn good, by yeah. the way. Oh, oh, yeah. And you know what? I never, no, ever talked to that guy again. Never saw that guy again. Really? That's yeah. kind of sad. Yeah. yeah, I never did. Well, we have um, a surprise for you, Jamie. <laughs> hey, Eddie, come on in. <laughs> you don't miss a beat, Jerry. No, you just don't. <laughs> everything gets down to the show. And, and let, me, let me tell you something. You know, that's Trump. a great story. It and is. good for you for doing that. Well, yeah. well no, 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 no. No, half of the half of the telling of that is to say how stupid. I mean, I guess in thinking back on it, yeah, there was a point in time where I kind of figured it out, but I was pretty slow to on the uptake on the there, draw. Huh? Well, you know, of, everybody was. Yeah, but we the probably point, all were. It, we all were. And the point is, but that's how it ultimate that whole civil rights thing. Because, you know, particularly for those of us who are white, I mean, and that's one of the things I don't like about um, a lot of these wonderful movies we see. Even the movies, so often the hero is the white guy. Like, wait a second, African-Americans have been living with this for 150 years. And 
you know, so they, they see this all the time, but it took... That's their, their lives. That's their but lives, you know and it something? took us a there are long certain time times, to start. I bet you'll agree with this. There are times when, if you're dealing with some white motherfuckers, some other... <laughs> some other see, now no, he just wants let me to make say this it. Point. He's like, now a, he's like a kid. Can't listen to this. Yeah. Let me make a point. He's like a bad kid. Sometimes some other white people have to deal with them. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. That was, there yeah. weren't black people involved in that. There were white, white people, people involved in that. And sometimes we got to take care of it within our own well, we, family. Well, For we sure. know that. And because you and I have been, uh, we do a lot of political trips, particularly around Ohio. And we yep. go to these uh, white counties and we give that pitch in a, you know, at a white Democratic Party dinner or whatever, yep. or a white. Kiwanis Club dinner, you know, we give that speech about civil rights or yep. gay rights or whatever. You have to be willing to speak. That's a great point. You have to be willing to speak to your own. Yeah, they got to hear that from us. Yeah. Correct. It, Not you know, having you go before an African-American audience and you say it. Oh, great. You're very courageous. Yeah. Uh, you know, say it to white people. Yeah, uh, because they got when there are no African Americans around. It's just you know, and, and say it in your own homes, and say it in your own, uh, your own clubs, your own whatever you belong to. That's that's where the battle is, and because we haven't done that sufficiently, you wind up with the kind of bigotry we saw in this last presidential race. I mean, that's a, a function of it. It didn't just happen overnight. It's years and years of neglect. That's the kind of bigotry we have in America today, you know, except for the extremes. It's not that a white person gets up and says, boy, I hate black people. Let's go get some. No, it's that it's not even on the radar. Isn't it amazing that the people that are most fighting against whether it's Hispanics, Muslims, um, African-Americans are people who live in communities where African-Americans don't live. I mean, isn't that weird? The most conservative states are the states or the areas, the counties, where there are no African-Americans. And they're the ones that are, you know, it's, it's all based on ignorance. It's all based on, because if you live, if we all live among each other, then we know, hey, we're really nice people. How many times, even on the issue of gay rights, they're totally against it until they find out, oh, oh my own son is gay. Yep. Then all of a sudden, you become understanding. Boy, that's... Isn't that true? And, oh, that and, well, Cheney and uh, uh, Portman and whatever. And, and I think it's wonderful that they come around. But why in the world did it take that to make you come around and see the humanity of the issue? It's, you know, we all need to be conscious of that. It's just so easy just not to think about it. And that's when bigotry takes force. And yep. Because we're not thinking about it. It just grows. Yep. Uh there's no segue to go from this to that, but I'm just going to ask this question. The, in the Trump election, all the pundits, us included, yeah. I mean, you more than me because this is more your domain, but we all thought it was going to go the other way. Today, Senator McConnell, the uh, Senate Majority Leader from yeah. the state of Kentucky, said he didn't think it was going to go the way it went. How did everybody get it so wrong as you look back and analyze it? Well... Okay, yesterday was the day that uh, Trump officially became the uh, president-elect because the Electoral College voted. So he is legally the president. And um, end of story, he's legally the president. Um, he has the power. But 
he's always going to have an asterisk next to his name because the truth is when the American people were asked who do you want to be president by just about three million people, which is hardly a nail biter, they chose Hillary. So it's not the voice of the American people. The American people wanted Hillary, but under the system we have, the majority vote isn't what counts. What counts is who gets the electoral college. Um, and so that's why Trump is the president and has the power, but it's not the voice of the people. And we're going to be living with that situation. The electoral college, something has to be done about it pretty quickly. And now is a good time to start because the election's over, so they can't say sour grapes. The election's over, Trump's in. But now, for the next time, we got to get a hold of this. And the reason we do is this is going to happen more and more often now. And the reason it's going to be happening is because demographically, most Americans live around cities. And the cities, because of the uh, cultural makeup, the cities vote Democrat. So most Americans live around cities, but the electoral college is mostly rural. We've had two of the last five elections this happened. That's 40 percent. We're going to start having it almost every election now. If we don't fix and do away with the electoral college, you are consistently going to get most Americans living in the cities. So the Democrat will always win California, always win New York, always win the big states. Even Texas in four to eight years will probably switch. And yet we're going to keep getting presidents who are elected by a minority of the people. So that we got to fix that. Otherwise, you are not going to have a legitimate president. In other words, you're going to have a president that whatever the party is won't be able to lead because the people will know that's not who we chose. There'll be no respect. If there's a crisis, who's going to follow the president? How's a president, God forbid, you know, we got to send our sons and daughters someplace. Who's going to follow when, wait a second, we didn't want you. What are you doing? We're not sending our sons and daughters to fight and die to protect your hotels or whatever overseas. I mean, there's going to be a legitimacy is a real issue. You know, if I'm Donald Trump's best friend, I'd say you got to work on legitimacy. This isn't about the ego. Figure out some way to include everybody. Otherwise, you're not going to have anyone to follow you. It's going to really, really, really be a problem. So that's the issue we have to take care of with the Electoral College, which is going to be very difficult to do because it's in the Constitution, and therefore you need three-quarters of the state legislatures to vote for it, to amend the Constitution, and of course the rural states aren't going to vote for that. So I haven't thought of an idea yet how we get this thing changed. But we better. If we go two or three elections in a row where the president gets to be someone who didn't get the votes— the public is not going to stand for this. And, you know, they just won't. And, and it's, it's hard to explain to the world why this guy is our leader when the people wanted somebody else. We're supposed to be the great democracy of the world. Okay, so having said that, that Hillary beat Trump by quite a bit, over, you know, three million votes. Trump still got a lot of votes. And how did he get those votes? Because when you listen to what he says, it seems, how in the world did he get elected? <laughs> and, well, because these are the things that happened with him. What he says doesn't matter. And the reason it doesn't matter is because whatever he says today, tomorrow, 
he'll say something different. So he was pro-choice, and then all of a sudden he's, you know, um, anti-abortion, anti-choice. And then he would say, uh, we're going to lock Hillary up, and then the next day he says, well, no, we're not going to go after Hillary. Uh, we're going to build a wall. Well, maybe we won't build a wall. And then he doesn't do what he says he's going to do. He says, we're going to drain the swamp. And yet virtually every one of his cabinet appointments came from the swamp. They worked for Goldman Sachs. Right. They're all the billionaires. They're all Wall Street. He lies to the people, the people that voted for him. He says, I'm on your side. We're going to drain the swamp. And then he's making fun of them. He thinks people are so stupid. Oh, they're not going to notice. And he hires everybody from Goldman Sachs. He says, I'm going to be for the little guy. And the first thing he does, he says, well, we're going to do away with the health insurance. You know, we're going to stop that. Or I, here's the tax plan, which is tax breaks for wealthy people and screw the rest of you because, you know, you can't pay for it. It's only going to be wealthy people who get the tax breaks. And, and his blatant lies are like, I won the popular election. Or three and a half million people, illegal aliens, voted. It's inconceivable that you could listen to him and see how he won. And yet here's the point. He is a communications genius. And what he gets... With Donald Trump, the reason all the pundits got it wrong is the pundits listen to what he says, and they draw their opinions based on that. But he doesn't use words to impart information or a political philosophy or an ideology. He uses words as a weapon to elicit an emotion. The words are only to elicit an emotion. That's what all the tweets are about. It doesn't matter what he says, just it gets you angry. So his emotions that he's trying to get out of his group is fear and hate, fear and bigotry. That's the emotion he's going for. Now, here's where the genius comes in. It has to do with advertising. When you go shopping, you see television ads, buy Tide Soap, buy Cheer, buy this. It's passive. And the reason a commercial can be subtle and passive when you're talking about a product is because everybody knows you're going to go shopping one day. And while you're shopping, as you go down aisle seven, you see that soap that you saw an advertisement about, you may buy it. The problem with politics is, is voting is not passive. It's an affirmative act you have to do, which is different than what you do every other day of the year. You have to somehow be inspired to get up and do something. That's why sometimes the polls are wrong. Because the polls, you answer the phone and they ask you who you're for and you say, who I'm for. But that's different than, I got to get up this morning, I got to go out and vote, or I got to fill out this you know, I got to go get registered or I got to fill out this ballot. It takes a certain kind of commercial that gets you inspired to go out and, and do the affirmative act of voting. A passive commercial can't do it, which is why the strongest emotions are hate, love, and fear. Well, you're not going to love a politician. 
So that's not going to get you out. You know, you may agree and boy, I really like, but that's usually not going to do it. So the two emotions that could get you to do something is fear. Oh my God, he's going to raise my taxes. Oh, they're going to have a zoning change in, uh, across the street from us. We got to vote against that councilman. Or we're going to go to war. Or they're going to deport my family. It's fear or hate are the two emotions left that could get you to do something, which is why 90% of all political commercials are negative. You ever wonder why? When you see a lovely ad with a candidate with, with his spouse and the kids and the dog and all that, it's warm and cuddly, but that doesn't get you to vote. What gets you to vote is lock her up. They're coming into your neighborhood. We're going to have bussing. All those negative ads, uh, negative messages, it goes to your emotion. Trump is a master at using words not to impart information, but just to get people angry. Now, when he picks on the journalists at the back of his rally, or when he... Uh, says something which is a blatant lie. He knows it's a lie, and he knows every reporter, every anchor, every cable news anchor will say, wait, that's a lie. And then he turns to his people and says, see how the media hates me? <laughs> They're after me. They, they hate everything we say. And remember, since he's going for the emotion, yeah, that media... Boy, they're after us. They hate all of you people. See, I'm fighting for you. So he says things. He knows it's a lie. He's not stupid. He's not educated on world events and stuff like that. But he's not stupid. He knows what he's doing. He's using words as a weapon to elicit an emotion, an emotion that can get you out to vote. So in the end, his get-out-the-vote effort was more effective than all the sophistication of what the Democratic Party had with all the phone calls and all that. Emotion gets you out. You don't even need a phone call. You don't even need a ground operation. If you're scared, if you're angry, if you hate, you'll get out and vote. And that is what we saw in this election. Yep. All right, good. Yep. And it's funny, that, I love your analysis uh, always, and that will help me if I get my dream and I'm working the rope line at uh, rallies for it's Donald big, Trump in the future. It's a big dream, I will Gene. remember <laughs> that analysis. I of, had a dream. <laughs> I, I had, had a dream. That one day, you, <laughs> right, you won't be ropes. on that rope line. You on a rope line. Let's give a hand for Ariel Bowie from Nashville, Ooh. Tennessee. Our musical guest, and uh, she has a great story, as all our musical guests do, but start us off with a song, would you, Ariel? All right, this song is called Open Arms, and I wrote it after all of that stuff went down in Ferguson. It's kind of my commentary on structural violence. All right. Say 
Ariel, I'm going to spell your name because I want to tell people how to follow the music. They can do that at arielbowie.com, and the, that album is called Ariel Bowie, and it's A-R-I-E-L, and then B-U-I. That's the Bowie part, arielbowie.com. And sometimes, Jerry and Megan, you know what sort of credibility somebody has based on who produces their records mm -hmm. and your producer Ariel for this latest album is somebody who's uh, Grammy nominated, uh, did uh, Alabama shakes and uh, some other kind of really cool groups. Hooray for the riff raff. What is her name? Um, oh, his name is Andrea Tokic. Or, pardon me, his name. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's pretty significant. Um, you live and work in Nashville. In fact, you have a radio show, don't you? I do. I have a radio show on um, our new freeform community radio station, uh, WXNA LP FM. It's a low-power community radio station that just started about six months ago. Nice. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah, yeah, I have a show called The Mesa Scene Show on Mondays from 11 to 1, and I usually have activists on, guests, and musicians to kind of talk about the work that they're doing. Showing up for racial justice was one that I thought of when you were talking about white yeah. people going to their own communities and talking about, yeah. you know, um, racial issues. Yeah. That's a that's If a you group. could pay my transportation, I'll come down there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. It's you in the business plan. With us. We got nice. gas money. Sorry. There you go. Just, you just hit your ride, Jerry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and understand, Ariel, we're really kind of cajoling writers to do some songs about Standing Rock. If that catches your interest, uh, sure. send us something. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Uh, there, there have been a lot of benefit shows in Nashville for yep. Standing Rock. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I'm sure we could get a whole compilation out of Nashville. Great. Oh, yeah. Hey, do a second <laughs> song for us, would you? Sure. The song's about Kentucky. Ariel Bowie. Oh, the moon over Kentucky It brings me to my knees Like the one I almost married To be Canadian Oh, the moon over Kentucky Is like a setting sun For your wife I will never be Blue. 
outstanding, oh, Ariel. Ariel Bowie. And good luck Ari with your student loan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do us a favor. Take us out on Irene Goodnight and uh, let Jerry Springer sing with you. That'd be, for him, a huge thrill. <laughs> <laughs> Quit rambling, quit gambling, quit staying out late at night. Stay home with your wife and your family, and stay by the fireside line. Irene, good night. You've been listening to Tales, Tunes, and Tomfoolery, recorded live at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. Thanks to Patrick Kennedy for writing our opening song, and to you for listening. Check out our website at jerryspringer.com. Oh, sometimes I live in the country And sometimes I live in town Sometimes I take a great notion To jump in that river and drown Irene, good night Irene, good night Good night